fellow iced coffee downloader. Feels like I've been on holiday. I generally enjoy working on this series, but with three episodes about aviation and spending time with the Nari Club members, it's been the diametric opposite of onerous developing these past couple of months of content. Now it's back to the chronological narrative last touched on in episode 67. The mechanisms favoured by a given party in territorial disputes invariably favour the narrative of that party. It's hard to get agreement when one side of a dispute is citing their priority in discovery while the other side is citing their effective management of that area. Sometimes you can catch a party expressing as near to embarrassment as a nation or a multinational corporation can do when the hypocrisy is highlit for all to see. But for the most part, the various claimants can apply double or even treble standards without the faintest hint of the cognitive dissonance at play, requiring, as such gambits require, doublethink that might make even members of the Ministry of Truth wince. After 400 years of discussion and dispute by European powers over the ownership of the seas, the early 20th century saw a general consensus that territorial waters extended some distance from the coastline in the order of the range of 19th century artillery. In Britain, France and the USA, this distance, defensible from shore batteries, was marked as the three-mile limit. Sweden and Norway thought four miles gave some wiggle room in case artillery improved over time, and Spain claimed six miles, but overall no one got crazy with their attempts to call keeps offsies at orders of magnitude more than the cannonball metric in play at the time, and we won't need to revisit territorial waters claims in this series until I start recounting events arising in the wake of the Second World War. Defining coastlines, on the other hand, is on the other hand. Britain wanted to treat ice shelves as coastlines, but no one took that approach in the Arctic, and it served other national interests to pretend they hadn't heard Britain claim the Ross Ice Shelf and the three-mile territorial limit extending from it. The Ice Shelf, as so eminently demonstrated by the disappearance of Balloon Bight between the visits of the Discovery and the Nimrod, doesn't constitute a permanent geographic boundary, but if not by the margin of the barrier, how do you define the edge of the Ross dependency? At the time under consideration, the rocky shoreline behind the barrier wasn't charted, no one having traversed it. Even if someone did traverse it by sledge, or observed it from the air, the exact position of the contour anyone might define as lying at chart datum still wouldn't stand out, lying as it does under glacial ice. We have the technology to draw that contour now, but the ground-penetrating radar and seismic sonar necessary for such measurement only came about recently, and people only ice-toughened the existing units to Antarctic standards even more recently. But, and here's a real geographic kick in the teeth, even if you can draw that contour on the chart reliably, geological considerations add in to the overall philosophical higgledy-piggledy. If you define a territorial claim as following the contour imposed at chart datum on an Antarctic coast, as though it wasn't covered in glacial ice. Should you take into account the isostatic rebound that coast would experience if it wasn't covered in glacial ice? Recall that isostatic rebound is the process by which the Earth's crust achieves a new equilibrium according to Archimedes' principle as applied to crusty rock croutons floating in a soup of runny rocks. No one's really answered that 
and will address why the questions remained moot for half a century in a dozen or so episodes. While Amundsen, Ellsworth and Nabil, Bird and Bennett, and Wilkins and Eilson were flying in the Arctic, political and economic interests were heating up in the cold of the Southern Ocean. In the USA, interest in Antarctica lay at a low ebb. Frederick Cook and Pennsylvania lawyer and mountaineer, Erwin Balch, encouraged their fellow Americans to look to the 19th century sealers as national heroes, rather than brutal and smelly opportunists, reigning extinction on the hapless pinniped denizens of the South. They called on the descendants of sealers to scour their homes for logbooks and such that would affirm the USA's rightful place at the forefront of Southern exploration, and therefore dominion, in the eyes of the rest of the world, Balch working several such artefacts up for typesetting and publication. John Randolph Spears' enthusiasm for Nathaniel Palmer led to his writing a biography about the sealer, published in 1922, based on discussions with Palmer's niece. Spears urged she make the log of the hero available for publication, but found, on examining the document, that the few jotted notes didn't amount to the compelling narrative of discovery he'd expected, and more, the bare-bones navigation and ship's accounting necessary to fulfil a tightly focused seal-killing mission. No joyous raptures about new lands, no breathless exclamations recounting claiming ceremonies. On the encouragement of Isaiah Bowman of the American Geographical Society, the logbook formed part of a display at the Library of Congress, put together by Chief of that Institute's Maps Division, Colonel Lawrence Martin, highlighting US achievements in the far south, but the exhibit didn't feature the contents of the logbook, only the fact that it is, indeed, a logbook. Colonel Martin's influence will receive further attention in future episodes of Ice Coffee. Erwin Balch tried to revive the United States prerogative in Antarctica, relying on the rhetoric of Robert Peary to conjure a sense of continuity between growing 20th century interest in the continent and Wilkes' expedition 80 years earlier. The American Geographic Society backed this initiative to backdate US interests in Antarctica by publishing the data left out of Wilkes' desultory efforts at working up the findings of his expedition. Belcher's efforts fell afoul of the Hughes Doctrine, gradually gaining traction as a means to discredit other nations' territorial claims in the increasingly post-imperial world. Some scientists were already seeking international conservation agreements for Antarctic waters in the early years of the 20th century. In 1911, Governor of the Falkland Islands, William Allardyce, sought to put a hold on new whaling licenses within the Falkland Islands dependency due to overexploitation. Many island inlets bearing mute testimony in the form of rotting whale carcasses, left too long to be processed economically. British economists, usually pretty slow on the uptake when the exploitation of natural resources for the benefit of British coppers was causing environmental harm, expressed concern as early as 1913 that Southern Ocean whaling, expanding as rapidly as it did in the era, might go the way of Southern Ocean sealing if not regulated effectively. Something had to be done to ensure a long-term profit maximised the common British good, where things appeared to be heading down a boom and bust path that would yield big returns quickly, but net Britain less profit overall. I don't know how the myth of British superiority percolated through the lower echelons of the strictly enforced class system in operation there, but it worked like a charm, and everyone bent their backs in the service of an idea. 
the glory of Britain in ways not seen anywhere today. That's not to say the people in power weren't taking advantage of the expertise and work going on below them, only that those being exploited in that framework seemed happy about it. After a few years faffing about with fact-finding missions deriving reports from industry self-reported data, the British Colonial Office, on the advice of Dr Sidney Harmer of the British Museum, in turn acting on advice from Norwegian whaling industry engineer, Andreas Morch, sent a representative of the museum to South Georgia to make observations and to report back on how they might best proceed in measuring the whaling industry catch per unit effort and gauge that against whale populations. But the kick-off of the First World War and the attendant demand for whale-derived glycerin got in the way of such prudent steps towards sustainability. The first step toward reducing waste in the whaling industry was the ban on the processing of just the blubber. If whalers wanted to hunt and process British-owned whales, they would have to process the whole carcass, which took time and fuel and cargo space. But it was a step toward management in an otherwise unmanaged industry. Meat and organs would be tried out for their lower value oils, and the meat would then be dried for cattle feed, and the skeleton would be mashed and cooked for use as fertiliser. Another move to shore up whale numbers in the long term banned whalers from killing mothers with calves, but the dearth of data precluded anyone taking a meaningful stance on what constituted a sustainable yield in the Falkland Islands dependency whale populations. Anywho, the hydrogenation of whale oil lipids for use in people food and refrigeration technology helping the hydrogenated products reach their markets without deteriorating beyond fitness for human consumption kept the price of whales high even after the end of First World War hostilities eased the urgent need for large volumes of whale-derived glycerin for use in the manufacture of gun cotton and explosives, the war having seen a spike of 12,000 rockles killed in the Southern Ocean in the 1915-1916 Austral Summer. In 1915, Antarctica experienced its first major oil spill. The Governoran was built as a cattle carrying ship called the Europe, and later converted into a whaling factory vessel. Details are sketchy, but the version of events passed down to me has a fire breaking out on board during a party celebrating the end of the whaling season, an overturned lantern catching the blame for the conflagration. Effective shipboard firefighting equipment and drills are a recent phenomenon, and the small fire quickly grew too big to contain and with the hold full of barrels of oil, adding their contents to the increasingly flamey flame fest, the captain decided the better odds lay in grounding the ship than fighting the fire. He put the Governoran on the hard in the north of Fern Harbour in the Enterprise Islands, and the 85 crew got ashore unharmed. The fire went out as the stern of the ship sank and the fuel up forward ran out. The Governoran sank around the same time the Endurance was losing its battle with the sea ice, 800 miles away on the other side of the peninsula, but with Wilhelmina Bay being a sheltered waters crossroads for the whaling industry of the day, it was unlikely the factory ship's crew would ever face an equivalent hard road to salvation. Chaser boats collected them, and divers brought south from Deception Island salvaged what equipment they could from the wreck. Unburnt oil from the hold formed slicks in Wilhelmina Bay, and while it was whale oil, to a bird's feathers, 
oil is oil, whether it came from a recent or a long dead organism. The Norwegians don't recount the numbers of birds killed by their accident, but you likely wouldn't either if you caused environmental damage you didn't care about or thought no one would notice. The wreck remains in place, the cold and sheltered waters of Fern Harbour preserving it in pretty good nick for a hundred year old wreck. You can even see the harpoon workshop through one of the portholes, explosive tipped harpoon heads on a bench, rusting away the ears and likely more dangerous to handle now than when they were new. No souveniring, dumbass. A lot of geographic features around the western side of the peninsula are named after the vessels that carried the whalers to them. While the whalers were more interested in whales and prophets than they were in geography and names on charts, an enterprising Scottish geologist and mining engineer, David Ferguson, on the pay of the Scottish whaling company Christian Salveson, named after its Norwegian immigrant founder, travelled along the peninsula in company with the fleet to prospect wherever they might land him. He made his regular summer forays to Antarctica between 1911 and 1915, not finding anything that warranted his employer's investment in mining operations, but putting Nico Harbour, Fern Harbour and Oran Harbour on the charts in 1921 when he published his non-commercial in confidence findings. In 1918, with six whaling stations operating on South Georgia and Deception Island serving as a staging point for resources, the Colonial Office mandated and funded the establishment of the Interdepartmental Committee for the Dependencies of the Falkland Islands to oversee research and management of Southern Ocean whaling. Popularly known as the Discovery Committee, the name stemming from the Dundee-built ship that Body purchased from the Hudson's Bay Company for £5,000 in 1924, and previously Robert Falcon Scott's command during the British National Antarctic Expedition, they set out to establish a scientific program to better understand the biology and ecology of the species in question while that was still possible. The Discovery Committee should never be conflated with the Discovery Institute, which is a shower of unscrupulous creationists in the USA, insisting their religion constitutes a scientific hypothesis, and wasting huge volumes of taxpayer money and people's time and energy in keeping their bullshit out of school curricula. They are not named after an awesome ship built in Dundee and with heaps of high latitudes cred, but after their misunderstanding of the word discovery, which they seem to use as meaning supernatural disclosure or revelation. To manage a fishery you need to know, at the very least, the fecundity, the growth rate and the various percentage natural mortalities of the population you want to draw your catch from. Sustainable yield is calculated as a percentage of the remaining population, a fraction that might be landed annually without affecting the species' ability to replace that anthropogenic loss. If you know enough about a species, this can be managed with some finesse, and the application of additional measures, such as closed seasons, bans on catching gravid females or protection of suckling females, or females full stop, can add even greater degrees of control to a management plan and safeguard against overexploitation. With whales in the Southern Ocean, no one even knew where to start with such modelling, because the basic information about how long whales take to reach sexual maturity, how often they breed, how long they gestate for, and how many die in a given time span wasn't available. No one ever stopped to make detailed observations, let alone gather and analyse data 
while the focus remained a continual drive to improve the means by which killing and processing whales could be made more efficient. Dr Stanley Wells Kemp, a crustacean specialist, headed a team featuring Dr Neil McIntosh, whose work in the south led to the most accurate and widely used ice atlases until the age of satellite imaging, and who determined the connection between the pack ice edge and planktonic productivity. Dr Harrison Matthews, a mammal biologist whose efforts focused on the whales and elephant seals. Zoologist Dr Alastair Hardy, inventor of the continuous plankton recorder, which he developed during his time with the Discovery Committee. Zoologist Dr John Wheeler, about whom I can't find much information, but who I'm confident wasn't the US physicist who coined the term black hole. And Dr Archie Klaus, about whom I can find no information beyond that he was a hydrologist. The Discovery, ship version, required 114,000 pounds worth of refit in order to make good on the years of Arctic-induced wear and tear, to fit the ship out for modern scientific research, and to finally make the mast and rigging adjustments suggested by Scott and Shackleton when the ship first went into commission, increasing the speed through the water by a clear 20%. The committee drew this money from the duties paid to the Falkland Islands dependencies by whalers whaling their waters. The Discovery Committee's scientific team sailed south aboard the Discovery under ice coffee regular Joseph Stenhouse, who, in a further ice coffee sidebar, married Aeneas McIntosh's widow, Gladys, in 1923. They commenced oceanographic surveys in the Falkland Islands dependency. They erected a prefabricated laboratory within walking distance of the whaling station Grootviken in Cumberland Bay and got to work examining the carcasses of those whales brought in on the flensing plan for processing. In the three months between getting themselves established and the whaling season ending for the 1925 Austral winter, the scientists took measurements of and samples from 241 whales. The first data that eventually built to a picture of whale breeding cycles, fecundity, gestation periods, rates of growth, and age at sexual maturity across the various species. Dr Neil McIntosh noted with some dismay that around 20% of the whales on the flensing plan were sexually immature, a bad sign for the state of the fishery, further reinforcing the need for their research. During the Austral winter of 1926, the Discovery Committee scientific team applied the same approach to characterising whale biology and the associated oceanography in South Africa, basing their efforts at the whaling station at Saldana Bay, while the Discovery itself underwent some modifications in the naval dry dock at Simonstown, adding bilge keels and reducing the height of masts and the number of yards to improve the ship's stability around the longitudinal axis, damping down the worst of the Discovery's tendency to roll. The following Austral summer, the Discovery was joined by the William Scoresby, a custom-built whale research vessel commissioned specifically for the Discovery Committee and named after a 19th century Arctic explorer. The new, faster vessel allowed the biologists to kick off a long-term tagging project in addition to planktonic and benthic sampling. Whales were shot with numbered stainless steel pins. If found in a whale carcass during processing, the pin, which featured Discovery Committee contact details, would provide information about the migratory habits of the animals. 
Of the more than 5,000 such tags shot into Wales during this initiative, 370 made their way back to the Discovery Committee researchers, which actually isn't a bad percentage return given the circumstances, and the information deriving from these returns offered insights into where the whales feeding in the waters around South Georgia migrated to during their breeding season. The Discovery performed chart correction surveys down the western coast of the Antarctic Peninsula and undertook oceanographic stations in the Drake Passage, filling in key blanks that previously prevented anyone seeing the whole of the big picture of southern ocean currents in that sector. The Discovery, much improved after the modifications made in South Africa, was paid off from service under the Discovery Committee in September 1927. But our Antarctic story isn't finished yet, and we'll hear more of her adventures in the South in further episodes. James Marr spent his post-quest expedition years completing a Master's of Arts degree in the Classics and a Bachelor of Science in Zoology, spending some of his spare time posing in his scout uniform outside cinemas in which Wilkins' cinematographic record of the expedition attempted to pay off some of that voyage's outstanding debts. James Marr joined the Discovery Committee's efforts in the South in the 1928-1929 season focusing his efforts on better understanding krill biology. The Discovery Committee's early but important work into understanding whale biology and ecology got off to a pretty solid start. It was also a means by which Britain sought to cement its effective administration of the Falkland Islands dependency, going well beyond housing a government official ashore to tally up the duties owed and check the licences. The voyages of the Discovery and the William Scoresby constituted the first British research in the South since 1912. The Imperial Transantarctic Expedition, the British Imperial Antarctic Expedition, and the Shackleton Rowett Expedition proving duds on that front. But notwithstanding the territorial element of the effort, the science was solid. I often diss the British en masse for being avaricious and pompous, but when they set out to do something they don't fuck about and I tip my furry hat to them for many of the best thought out and equipped marine research expeditions in history. The Discovery investigations, as the various voyages came to be known even after the Discovery itself was no longer part of them, constituted some of the best planned and most comprehensive oceanographic projects since the Challenger expedition of the previous century. Sir Cecil Hurst, legal advisor to the Foreign Office, determined that only occupation or effective control over an area gave validity to territorial claims, though he was careful not to apply this metric to the Falkland Islands or Ross Sea claims, given that Britain left the Falklands in 1776, in Phil Wicken's words, leaving a note for the milkman and putting out the cat, before sailing out of Stanley, leaving behind a plaque claiming the islands in the name of King George III, and no one having lived in the Ross Dependency for more than two years and even then, the last residents having departed in 1916 aboard the Aurora, toasty almost to the point of dissolution. And besides, Sir Cecil Hurst figured no one was likely to ever contest the British claim to the Falkland Islands. Sir Cecil Hurst died in 1963, and so never saw how wrong he was about that particular point. Hurst recommended that Australia make periodic survey voyages south, to reinforce the idea of effective control, where the Ross Dependency was making do with the seasonal presence of George Hooper, 
aboard those Norwegian whaling vessels still bothering to pay license fees for their whaling activities. The Admiralty and the Foreign Office figured a slow but steady approach to Dominion was more likely to yield results than acting urgently on Amory's urgent urgings. British attempts to discredit other nations' incursions on Amory's grand scheme for claiming the whole continent included writing off Amundsen's proclamation at the Pole as invalid, his having, in the British interpretation, only pushed the record for furthest south a few miles, always belittle your opponent's achievements, further than Shackleton, who'd already claimed the Antarctic Plateau, albeit getting himself thoroughly shit-canned for doing so by those members of the Royal Geographical Society and the Royal Navy within the sphere of influence of Sir Clements Markham. When it came to matters of territorial claims, any Britisher would serve to bolster the national interest, no matter how big a cad they might appear in the eyes of the knobs. He might be a cad, but at least Shackleton was a British cad. The 1926 Imperial Conference listed seven areas Britain could make credible claims to based on the standards they were willing to hold other nations to, and made recommendations for further voyages Key among them returned visits to those places Mawson already claimed without the formal approval of the British government. Voyages by which formal claims might be made with formal approval because that makes all the difference when you say the incantation and wave the coloured fabric. And the subsequent issuing of letters patent by the King. In 1924, the French Ministry of Marine issued a decree that a daily land fell under the purview of the French Navy. And in 1925, the official journal of Madagascar and related dependencies published a notice stating that all economic rights within a daily land and the Crozet archipelago came under French control as administered by the governor of Madagascar, and that all wildlife within that territory and its waters were protected from exploitation by non-French interests. With France not visiting its claimed territory since the proclamation ratifying the claim made by de Montdeville, let alone exploiting the resources therein, the publication was headed, Creation of a National Park of Refuge for Certain Species of Birds and Mammals. Thus, the first territorial approach to protecting Antarctic marine living resources was more about preventing anyone else getting their grubby British hands, did we say British? We just meant grubby hands, on them. Also, fuck the British, love France. Both Australian and Norwegian geographic luminaries disputed the French claim to a daily land finally settled as lying between 136 and 142 degrees east, based on their own far greater discoveries in, occupation of, and, in the case of Norway, utilisation of the waters adjacent to, the region. Britain wasn't eager to contest the French claim in case it tipped some of their own similarly tenuous proclamations on their heads, but they didn't like that the French extended the boundaries of a daily land to the Pole. De Montdeville's crew not even having made a landing on the coast from which these boundaries extended south. They didn't make too much of a fuss about the sector approach to inductive geography though, as it looked analogous to their own efforts in both the Arctic and the Antarctic. The Royal Navy recommended that the French claim should be restricted to the coast, and that Britain should claim all that lay to the south of that marginal a daily land, and Amory, who became colonial secretary in 1924, was all for that but no one could find a hook on which to hang the scheme other than Britain. And in the wake of the First World War, that word and the concept it represented no longer carried the rhetorical imperial weight it once did. 
No one explored, occupied or managed the area to the south of the Adelie Land coast, and so no one could find a lever by which to dispute the French application of the sector model. In the Austral summer spanning 1923 and 1924, Carl Anton Larsen, Norwegian-born British subject, ice pilot and whaling magnate, purchased a large steel-hulled steamship, the Maronda, retrofitting it with large internal tanks for whale oil, new boilers and hardwood sheathing on the bow as a nod to protecting the hull in the pack ice. The ship, renamed James Clark Ross, to celebrate the leader of his adopted nation's most celebrated exploratory expedition of the previous century, Larsen sent it into the Ross Sea to act as the factory vessel to a brace of five chaser vessels, the Star 1, Star 2, Star 3, Star 4, and, oh, well, you get the idea, in the untouched whale populations south of New Zealand. Among the coal, barrel staves, and the sharp, and bluntly brutal equipment of the whalers trade, the James Clark Ross carried materials and supplies for shore huts. Nominally intended to serve as refugia, nominally intended to serve as refugia for wrecked crews, such structures might also serve as the bases for territorial claims, and in spite of Larson's citizenship and the British name he applied to his ship, no one in the Foreign Office or the Colonial Office trusted foreigners, even the British ones and word came down through the Commonwealth channels of power that someone must keep an eye on Larson's operations. As the James Clark Ross towed its chasers down the Dontracasto Channel out of Hobart, it carried New Zealand Government Maritime Advisor George Hooper, recently sworn in as a Justice of the Peace and a Magistrate, in order to represent the Ross dependency. His berth aboard the factory ship was perceived by Larson as an extra mouth to feed for no return, and by Britain as tacit Norwegian acceptance of New Zealand's administration of the Ross Dependency, and at one remove, British sovereignty over the region. That first whaling season in the Ross Sea proved unsatisfactory to all involved. The chasers caught blue whales, which offer a great return per catch, but which are hard to handle alongside a factory vessel because of that, their size making them difficult to flens, particularly in open waters with as many as 32 blue whale carcasses awaiting processing at a time. The James Clark Ross could only handle the catch by towing three at a time into the semi-sheltered waters of Discovery Inlet. With the inlet too deep to anchor in, and too exposed to allow work in strong winds from almost any direction, the processing ran slow, which makes for crappy oil. Blubber is an extremely effective thermal insulator, and combined with the large size of rockwools, this makes swimming a key element in maintaining thermal equilibrium in these animals. Dead whales don't swim, and so don't experience much thermal loss. Their relatively high internal temperature increases in the hours after their death, as the chemical processes already in play take some time to wind down, and then further thermal increases occur as the cellular processes run out of control after homeostatic equilibrium is lost and as bacterial colonies no longer held in check by the immune system ramp up their numbers and begin the process of necrosis, dead whales get very hot. They cook from within, and the high temperatures can denature the lipids that make up the blubber, starting with the finest fractions, which bring the highest market prices. Between slow flensing at Discovery Inlet, and the several days the James Clark Ross Blue searching for a missing chaser, 
the voyage only yielded close to 20,000 barrels of oil. Very close to 20,000 barrels of oil. That was the cut-off at which the operation would have to pay duty on the take. Instead, the James Clark Ross and its gaggle of chasers headed north, its oil tanks only one-third full, and having paid only the licence fee of £2,500. The chasers, under the leadership of Peter Varil, wintered in Patterson Inlet, Stewart Island, where the Norwegians set up a workshop and a slipway. The remnants of the workshop, steam engine, the slip, and several iron screws still reside on the foreshore at Kaipipi. The James Clark Ross returned to Norway for modifications to better suit Ross Sea whaling conditions. While aboard for a second season in Antarctic waters in December 1924, Carl Anton Larsen died of a heart attack. He was a significant character in Antarctic history, shaping the whaling industry almost single-handedly and seeing the Swedes through their trials at Paulette Island. We won't see their like again is usually a trite truism as the opportunities and economics are different for each cohort, but Carl Anton Larsen was an elemental force in his own right, and while his influence will ring on in the narrative, I'll miss using my pronunciation of his name in discussing him as a living person. With the fleet heading north at the end of the season with 31,500 barrels of oil, he missed seeing his new project make its first significant profit, and the James Clark Ross came away with 38,000 barrels the following Austral summer. As usual, where Larsen led, others followed. In 1925, the first custom-built factory ships headed into the Ross Sea. These featured a ramp at the stern, allowing the operation to haul whales up onto a flensing plan clear of the water. This simple but significant technological development, still the model used by the remaining whaling operation, singular, at work in the Southern Ocean, to this day. The stern ramp allowed ships to process their catch in a much broader range of sea states and entirely in open waters. With ships no longer needing to seek refuge close to a coast, the three-mile limit need not be crossed. Not everyone told Britain to stick its licensing fees up its arse straight away, but the writing indicating anally fitted licences as the shape of the future was on the wall, or on the sloping steel sheeting laid from the waterline to the flensing plant. In 1926, the Norwegians kicked off the first Southern Ocean whaling season in which operations remained entirely in international waters. With more Norwegian ships heading south, operating without licences and outside the British Aegis, able to chart and potentially claim as yet unseen coasts, Leo Amory lost his shit. Or, more precisely, urged that British officials in any position to do so should throw any spanner they could in the Norwegian works, from bureaucratic stalling and providing information through to preventing British chandlers selling them the stores, coal and equipment necessary to work away from British-controlled port facilities in the south. Returning to New Zealand after the 1925-1926 whaling season, George Hooper reported that the James Clark Ross only used the shelter offered by Discovery Inlet for the first tranche of whales processed that season, with all other operations taking place in international waters. In the 1926-1927 season, two licensed operations got antsy 
that the unlicensed factory ship Nielsen Alonso worked the same waters with better results. Not being bound by British decrees on the processing of whale carcasses, the crew of the Nielsen Alonso could strip the blubber and chuck the meat and skeleton, where licensed vessels had to process the lower grade oils deriving from the muscle tissues and render the bones into fertiliser. The unlicensed operation further netted a better profit margin because Captain R. N. Gertsen, in addition to saving £2,500 on the licence, wasn't paying any duties on the 36,700 barrels of high-grade blubber oil processed from the 456 whales his chasers caught that season. With the Ross dependency unable to offer any substantial advantage to whaling concerns working to the south of New Zealand, the government became concerned that whaling revenue looked likely to fall, that effective control of the Ross dependency didn't carry much weight if you weren't able to boss anyone about, and that the whale populations of the Southern Ocean might face the local extinction pressures that played out in the Arctic whale populations in the previous century. With George Hooper constituting the entirety of New Zealand's attempts to patrol and occupy the Ross Dependency, the nation's dominion over the region looked a tad shabby. David Day, writing in Antarctica, a biography, points out that no New Zealand official ever went ashore anywhere in the dependency they claimed to administer. Not a great look when everyone's eyeing up the weaknesses in everyone else's claims. Spooked beyond any previous reservations about how the French might react, Amory pushed for an immediate claim to the whole continent, but the Foreign Office and the Admiralty remained determined to only claim those areas explored by British representatives, and it was this approach that Britain as a whole adopted at the Imperial Conference in November 1926. In spite of Norwegian reticence about British claims to the Ross Ice Shelf, because it's not a coast, and Edward VII land, which no Brit ever set foot on, Lars Christensen, the shipping and whaling magnate son of Christian Christensen, the shipping and whaling magnate, applied for a Ross Sea whaling licence to work the waters between the Ross Dependency and the Falkland Islands Dependency in 1926. The British authorities issued the licence figuring that act constituted tacit managerial status over the waters in question, an interim extension of the Commonwealth until someone could get ashore and wave some flags and make claims. While Christensen saw mercantile value in working the Ross Sea whale populations, Adhad Larison, Christensen felt far more Norwegian pride, keeping his citizenship in the face of British bureaucracy and starting to conceptualise how to establish Norwegian claims in Antarctica. With Norway recently losing its traction in eastern Greenland to Denmark, and the outcomes of the British Imperial Conference threatening to erase, or at least dis in no uncertain terms, Norwegian achievements in Antarctica, Christensen saw it both as his duty and as being in his personal interests to firmly establish Norwegian territorial claiming rights in the south. On the recommendation of none other than Fritjof Nansen, the Norwegian government granted Lars Christensen claiming authority. In January 1927, he sent the chaser Odd One, prominent in episode 61's recounting of the British Imperial Antarctic Expedition, to the Bellingshausen Sea, where the whaling was pants, but where a landing on Peter the One Island offered some scope to claim effective control of an area no one else was interested in at that point. Christensen followed this up by sending the wooden-hulled Norvegia, captained by Harald Hornvet 
the Bovitoya. Discovered in 1739 and not sighted since British sealer George Norris made a landing in 1825, failing to recognise it as the de Montdeville discovered landmass and calling it Liverpool Island. Christensen sought to establish a base of operations equivalent to those on South Georgia, but outside British control. Pontvert put ashore on the island, making a topographic survey and geological and biological collections. An intended meteorological station proved too ambitious a project, but a sturdy hut well stocked with stores for any sailors that might find themselves shipwrecked there was erected, a territorial gambit that failed Norway in East Greenland, but still a more tangible assertion of effective administration than anyone made there previously. Oslo received a radio report on these developments from the Norvegia, Marconi's great invention coming increasingly to the fore in Antarctic operations and picking up the pace of political developments, previously restricted to the maximum speed at which the ships carrying the written reports could travel. Hauntvert tried to sail further south to make a landing in Enderby land, but a grounding forced a change of plan, the Norvegia sailing instead to South Georgia for repairs. In November 1927, Christensen sent the Norvegia to survey as yet unseen and unnamed coasts. While the ship carried two scientists, Royal Navy hydrographers read Christensen's intent as territorial, and as Lars Christensen intended putting a Norwegian claim on the continental coast between 60 degrees east and 20 degrees west, fully a quarter of the Antarctic circumference, and overlapping part of Enderby land, claimed by John Biscoe for William IV in 1831, they weren't incorrect. The same British hydrographers called for an immediate British claim on the same coast, based on discovery by sealers, in spite of the problematic fact that no British sealers charted any coasts between those meridians, or reported their catches coming from there, because sealers kept their secrets by not letting anyone know that they had secrets to keep. Norway was, at the time, disputing sector-based claims to the north of Norway, and so never sought to apply the sector model in Antarctica. So the British saw scope to assuage any butthurt they experienced over coastal claims that got international traction by performing exploration in and claiming the hinterlands and the plateau beyond any successfully claimed coasts. I'm betting that as the 1920s played out, Amory wasn't thrilled at the whittling doom his grand design for the continent experienced. In an attempt to prevent further unlicensed whaling in the Ross Sea, Britain sent a deputation to Norway in 1927 to explain to anyone who'd listen that the Ross Ice Shelf constituted a permanent coastline, in spite of it floating on the sea, hoping that keeping the outline of the Ross Dependency indeterminate and the three-mile limit extending from it similarly hard to define might encourage pragmatic Norwegians to continue stumping up the licence fees and paying the duties on their oil. Britain's counter to Norwegian reticence about British traction in Edward VII land required some fairly desperate reading between the lines. While a Norwegian point that no Brit ever set foot in the area stood, British geographers highlight that Amundsen proclaimed he had no interest in traversing to, or claiming, Edward VII land when the Terra Nova encountered the Fram in the Bay of Wales in 1911. They also noted that Norwegians that did set foot there only did so as part of Amundsen's punishment on Hjalmar Johansson, 
for insubordination following the abortive first attempt to reach the pole from Framheim, and that in the notes regarding the claim made in the name of the King of Norway during that foray, the Norwegians referred to Captain Scott as a respected precursor and named a nun attack after him. As mentioned early in the episode, people clung to whatever version of events and whatever approach to schoolyard lawyering that best served their interests. At the same time, Australian claims, mostly spurred by Mawson, sought to ignore the French proclamations regarding a daily land, de Montdeville having only coasted along the coast, where Australians set up shop and surveyed, geologised and made heroic life and death marches against time and starvation on the coast nearest their homeland. Britain left Australian Prime Minister Stanley Bruce hanging because the proximity equals natural authority over a space model would leave British interests in Graham land open to question by Argentina and because nothing Britain wanted to achieve in the Arctic would make sense under that framework. In 1928, Britain granted a licence to a Norwegian company seeking to hunt whales in the vicinity of Liverpool, Ireland. The Norwegian government pointed out that they'd already claimed the island and worked the adjacent waters. Given that the licence not only misnamed the existing land, but incorporated a second, spurious island, likely a large iceberg spotted by George Norris and named Thompson Island, Britain made something of a blue in trying to establish itself as effective administrator of the area. Whatever the British press might fume about presumptuous Scandinavians trenching on British property, the Norwegians weren't budging on the matter. Christensen's mooted meteorological station was suddenly a priority, and the Norwegian people, still pouting over the Danish stealing a political march on them in East Greenland, had his back. Amory's dream of claiming the entire continent, rapidly fading by degrees, might still have seen a 70% British territorial claim with some international credibility had Britain picked up on the mooted but shot down idea of a deal with Oslo, trading off half of the as yet unexplored coasts in exchange for recognition of British sovereignty everywhere else than a daily land. Unfortunately for Amory, the British love of the sector model precluded acceptance of purely coastal claims which Norwegian counterclaims made against sector claims in the north forced Norway to pound in the south. Britain recognised Norway's claim to Bovatoya in November 1928, receiving in return an agreement that Norway would not make claims within the seven areas listed as credible British territorial claims in the report of the Imperial Conference of 1926. An Australian diplomat in London, who later became a member in the Australian Federal Parliament and then the Australian Governor-General, Richard Casey, pushed that a British whaling company should make landings and establish claims on the Antarctic coast between 60 and 90 degrees east, forming a bulwark between the informal Australian territorial claims made by Mawson in 1912 and Lars Christensen's area of operation until such time as someone could return to Mawson's landing sites and buttresses unofficial magic words with official ones. Christensen sent the Norvegia, in company with a factory vessel, the Torshammer, back to Bovatoya to establish the meteorological station and radio transmitter. Their efforts thwarted again for want of a suitable site. In their absence, the refuge hut blew apart under the pressures exerted by the local weather, 
and the Norwegians began reconsidering the merit of their new territory. In November 1928, they headed to Peter I Island to see if they can make a hut stay in place there. There's a lot going on at once, so I'll leave the whalers there for the moment, so we don't get too far ahead of the aviators. In a brief and likely one-off segment I'm incorporating into this episode titled Yesterday, Leave Me Alone, I experienced deep, sometimes pleasant, sometimes nauseatingly sickly, sometimes unsettling waves of nostalgia as I prepared my notes for this episode. In what now feels like another lifetime, I took flying lessons through the Scout Association using the gravel runway of the Casey Airfield in Berwick. Turned into a campus of Monash University in 1994, itself named after the general and engineer, John Monash, Casey Airfield was only named such after the former Governor-General, politician and diplomat ceased flying in the 1960s. The runway and hangars were first established at the site by the property owner, brother to Lady Casey, so that Richard Casey could commute between his government duties in Canberra and his property just a mile over the hills to the north of the airfield. I hadn't thought of the airfield name since 1991 until I started reading up on Antarctic territorial claims. Delving even further back into my past, one of Lord Casey's aircraft, a Percival Messenger, forms part of the Australian Restoration Group's collection at Moorabbin, where I volunteered between the ages of 15 and 17. I believe the group incorporated Lord Casey's hangar into their site when Monash University began preparations for the tertiary education facilities that the Berwick site now comprises. And in reading up on the stars 1 to 5, spending their austral winters in Patterson Inlet, I was transported to more recent but still seemingly completely foreign experiences in the early 2000s, visiting the former workshop site and marvelling at the hardness of Norwegian whalers expected to stow gear forward and raise the prop shaft clear of the water, and then lower one of the crew over the stern to replace a damaged propeller with the spare, all while bobbing about in the southern ocean. I sailed to the site aboard a miserably top-heavy research vessel that anyone listening to this who worked out of the Portobello labs between the late 1960s and 2007 might shudder to hear me name-check, the RV Munida. Dun dun dun! Well, it might be that it wasn't all that bad before all the aftermarket gear made it increasingly top-heavy, but I never before or since sailed on a vessel that caused me so much vomiting. Good Times in the Fjords with Paul Bruin, Keith Murphy and Artie Heineman were balanced by some seriously unpleasant transits down the east coast and across the Fovo Strait. Anyway, the Munita got me home and that's the important bit. That we got home with samples was a bonus. And while we were on the track between Miller's Landing and the Whalers Workshop, we saw a Stewart Island Kiwi. Damn. I just remembered that we were diving from the Munit on that trip and I was wondering how the fuck we got back on board and I remembered the potato masher. This really has been an odd few hours. Fuck. Seriously. Yesterday. Leave me alone. I hope I don't get this fucked up remembering today in 20 years time. Though if the track record to date is anything to go by, I will be. Fuck me. I should take a drink. 
Anyway, this trip down the disreputable alleys of the back blocks of my memory was a very, very long-winded way to get to the topic of krill, which has received much mention in the series as the key species in the Southern Ocean food web. Faster than a speeding diatom, more powerful than a misid, able to turn phytoplankton into animal protein in a single trophic stage. It's a penguin. It's an ROV. No, it's krill. Krill is a Norwegian word that means small fry. Fry referring to the larval stage of a fish's life cycle, and not the human inclination to cook fish in a skillet. The Norwegian word for krill is kreb, which is likely where crab eater seals got their name, the anglicised version in turn leading to the specific epithet Lobodon carcinophagus, lobe-toothed cancer eater. Cancer referring to the constellation alleged to look like a crab, not the disease, Cancer being the word for crab during the time of Hippocrates and then Galen, the Greek godfathers of medicine. Why they decided tumours warranted comparison with crabs is likely an interesting story, but not one I'm going to follow up on. You can go listen to Sawbones if you want that sort of information. Otago Harbour, from which the RV Munita formerly operated, is sporadically turned red by dense swarms of small crustaceans. These are not krill. They are Munida gregaria, the species from which the research vessel drew its name. Munida gregaria are widespread throughout the Southern Ocean, early records arising from around the Falklands and Tierra del Fuego, and Joseph Banks recording them off Cape Horn. The red tides, which aren't the same as algal red tides which cause fish kills in eutrophic waters, and you can understand why scientists use binomial nomenclature when confusing terms keep cropping up among the poetic but extremely common common name Argo, are caused by the post-larval form of a species within the squat lobster group or family Galatheidae of the crustacea, those jointed limbed organisms belonging to the arthropoda, or the euarthropoda, or the articulata, depending on which systematic model you apply. Crustacea feature 19 body segments or tagmata and two pairs of antennae, or four antennae. Damn it, it's impossible to even make a single straightforward step in discussing the crustacea without caveats and footnotes, and this is even more evident when you try to draw a monophyletic or... Damn it, it's monophyletic. You either know what that means or you don't. Cladogram or family tree where Linnaeus' handy-dandy classification hierarchy extends to seven levels, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. Most models applied to the crustacea require 19 or so levels to keep everyone in their evolutionary lane, or monophyletic place. An imperfect analogy there, as you can change lanes back and forth while driving, where evolution is a ratcheting process that doesn't ever let you go back. It's onward or extinction which might actually make some casually disastrous drivers less dangerous to me and mine if applied as a road use policy, and which I'll make a note of in my If I Ever Get To Be King scrapbook. Infraorders, superfamilies and subfamilies litter the taxonomic, naminess, literature, written stuff, relating to the crustacea, crunchy, tasty sea buggles. Anywho, the munita swarms I saw in Otago Harbour featured the post-larval Munita gregaria returning to coastal waters after spending their juvenile life as part of the Miroplankton, 
those animals unable to swim against a current, but which are merely part of the plankton for part of their life cycle, as contrasted with the holoplankton, which are planktonic for the hollow of their life, to settle on the benthos, seafloor, and take up scavenging, eating dead stuff. Munida are often called krill, because people see a reddish cloud of crustaceans in the water, big enough to feed a whale, and think, whales eat krill, that could feed a whale, so that must be krill. They're correct that whales could and do feed on swarming munida, but they aren't krill because of 11 billion morphological, body shapey, and physiological, body chemistry processy, differences. Southern Ocean krill, Euphausia superba, are holoplanktonic and feed on phytoplankton, combing the outcomes of summer, long day season, photosynthesis, light making, from the water, liquid hydrogen hydroxide, with their feathery paired ventrolateral biramus limbs, or periopods, or periofoots. Crustacea have an exoskeleton, or outside skeleton, which they have to periodically molt, or shed, in order to grow, get bigger, or metamorphose, change shape. But the krill can pull off a particularly unusual trick during their molts. Where most organisms that perform ecdysis, or molting, ratchet forward in form or size, krill can shrink or discard sexually dimorphic, different structural characteristics distinct to male and female forms, structures, reverting to smaller, undifferentiated life stages when times are tough. This sexual plasticity, no, I'm done buggering about with definitions, makes krill particularly difficult to study in terms of mapping population cohorts, as you never know if a particular animal is a youngster passing through a given stage for the first time, or a multi-year old hand making their second or third pass through that stage. So some of the key information fisheries ecologists rely on in understanding the population dynamics of other oceanic species are either hard to measure or entirely absent from our models of Southern Ocean krill. There's lots of them, but whether they're getting modally older or younger is hard to determine. With Southern Ocean marine mammals taking big population hits in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries, krill populations experienced less predation. When whalers hunted the Southern Rorquals down to their lowest ebb, the absence of these large, hungry hungry humpbacks and their kin gave an advantage to other krill feeders and the crab eater seals and high latitudes penguins found themselves on feeding Easy Street. The southern ocean being as big as it is, it's hard to imagine there not being enough krill to go around, but it's a basic tenet of ecology that no species holds back from breeding up past the carrying capacity of the system. Equilibrium, if the constant state of ecological flux can ever really be called that, requires that large numbers of the resulting offspring die or fail to breed through lack of access to resources. Krill is a resource, and the absence of the big eaters left more to go around for the smaller species. Crab eater and penguin numbers, and therefore the numbers of those animals that feed on them, went up in the absence of large rockwool populations. I'm yet to get to discussing human krill harvesting, but I'm sure you've now got enough information to make some rough predictions about how Antarctic vertebrates fare when the monkeys work out how to make use of the protein available in krill form in the south. 
krill can grow up to 50mm long, but as already noted, their size isn't directly analogous to their age. Euphausia superba are among the longer-lived species within the Euphausiaceae, kicking around for as much as six years. Krill perform daily vertical migrations through the water column, those with empty stomachs tending to actively work toward the water surface, and those with full tum-tums sinking. The migrations sync up with day and night cycles, but at higher latitudes this is complicated by the unusual day-to-night ratios experienced close to the solstices. The key thing to know is that vertical migrations occur in an ecological attempt to avoid the worst effects of predators, in turn exposing the population to predators in a wider range of depth niches than would occur if they stayed vertically put. There's just enough individual advantage in the activity that it carries on through the generations. Those krill that throw their articulated limbs in the water column and chitter their maxillopods together in a string of noises equivalent to, fuck it all, I'm not moving another vertical inch, ending up selected out of the population and into the gut of a krill predator, more often than those that just get on with the vertical task. Some years, the krill don't turn up in the accustomed summer numbers, and these crash years, or krill-poor summers, such as that in 2008-2009, give the Southern Ocean vertebrate populations a thorough kicking. Penguins and seals prey switch to fish, but experience high mortality among their chicks and pups due to the low food catch per unit effort experienced in their feeding forays. While the species remains a focus of research attention today, much of the basic work representing our understanding of krill biology was by Shackleton's boy scout, James Marr, whose treatise, Natural History and Geography of Antarctic Krill, was first published in 1962. The continuous plankton recorder received a brief mention earlier in this episode as being invented by Dr. Alistair Hardy during his time with the Discovery Committee. The basic mechanism he devised was later developed by Hardy and one of his students, Cyril Lucas, while at University College, Hull. The version they published designs for in 1931 remains, with some modifications and tweaks in the design which reached the configuration we know and love today in 1948, the most elegant sampling mechanism in a field replete with clever gadgets. The continuous plankton recorder a stainless steel contraption about a metre long, is towed behind a ship at 10 metres depth. The water it passes through turns an impeller which works a gearbox that spools two layers of silk gauze over a system of rollers. A stream of water entering the front aperture of the device is filtered through the silk gauze, which, when sandwiched together to make sure the collected material can't be dislodged from its relative position on the gauze, is collected into a tank of pH-buffered formaldehyde preservative. The unit is deployed at the start of a voyage and remains deployed other than to change out the silk spools and the preservative fluid. The exposed silk, once removed from the preservative tank, is cut into lengths representing 10 nautical mile divisions. These are compared to a standardised colour chart to grade the greenness this phytoplankton colour index standing as a proxy for the density of phytoplankton in the waters that each silk span represents, plankton cells being too small to count as individuals to any degree of efficiency. The silk is then examined under a dissecting microscope to identify phytoplankton taxa 
and to identify and enumerate zooplankton. Around 300 ships have towed continuous plankton recorders over 5.5 million nautical miles since Hardy and Lucas developed the device, offering large datasets over large spatial and temporal scales with a degree of granularity it's hard to imagine any remote sensing approach ever matching. And I'll eat my words happily if someone proves me wrong, because that would be awesome. Data from the various CPR projects taking place across the nine nations contributing to the Global Alliance of Continuous Plankton Recording Surveys are answering questions about fisheries recruitment, algal blooms, biogeography, offering compelling and worrying insights into climate change, with some warm water plankton species extending their range into the North Atlantic by a consistent 14 nautical miles a year, without ever reaching the abundance recorded for the colder water species they displace. After his time in academia, Alistair Hardy published his aquatic ape hypothesis, 30 years after he first came up with it, having sat on his hands with the concept because he knew it would not be well received by his peers. And it wasn't. He also started the Religious Experience Research Centre, wherein his work classifying and generating unfalsifiable explanations for the wide range of self-reported revelations, epiphanies and enlightenments people have experienced and written about over the years earned him the 1985 Templeton Prize. Nick Johnson's Big Dead Place website is back up, but a lot of the links therein are still kaput. I found one of the missing pieces of that puzzle in the archives of Modern Drunkard magazine, an interview Nick took part in with Giles Humbert III, published under the title Soused at the South Pole. My friend and fellow Storytelling Australia member, Alex Carnum, helped me recreate the interview, and it's appended here with the permission of Frank Kelly Rich of Modern Drunkard magazine. When we think about Antarctica, we tend to think about vast tracts of frozen wastes, of desperate men whipping dogs toward lonely deaths or international glory, of Kurt Russell taking a flamethrower to shape-shifting aliens. What we don't think about are bacchanalian orgies and non-stop drinking, which proves how badly we've been misled, because that's precisely what's going on. Not only is there plenty to drink, there's plenty of reason to drink, as the following interview with a resident of the southernmost point of the world reveals. How long have you been stationed in what you refer to as the Big Dead Place? Since 1998. I've spent a little over three years total in Antarctica, but this is my first winter at the Pole itself, where I'm going on month nine. What in God's name are you doing down there? Well, our main purpose is as caretakers of an expensive American facility. Just like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, but with more geopolitical significance and fewer axe murders. Our sub-purposes split off from there. Some are building a new station, some are doing science, and almost everyone else keeps the place running. Naturally, under such circumstances, you're expected to get loaded on a regular basis, true? Verily. Do you throw a lot of parties? There are lots of parties in the summer, fewer in winter. And what, pray tell, can be expected at these parties? Well, a few weeks ago we had a party where someone took a big block of ice and carved little ski trails in it. 
down which kamikazes were poured into eager mouths of those wearing ski goggles and holding ski poles. This was called Liquor Mountain. Women gave prizes to any man who showed up in a dress, so there was much cross-dressing. Myself, I wore a nasty leopard print number with the nipples cut out, drank one too many kamikazes, and barfed up corn dogs in the snow. Great God, is that a typical soiree? Not really. Your basic Antarctic party either includes meat and beer and standing around, or meat and beer and dancing to the greatest hits of the 80s while wearing disco clothes. For some reason, people can't get enough disco clothes here. They are a source of infinite delight. I assumed it would be decadent, but this goes quite beyond the pale. Well, sometimes the Air National Guard guys have a keg-tossing contest outside the bar at McMurdo Station. One time some folks held an exorcism for one of the machines that kept breaking down, where they drank whiskey and played songs for the machine. And this one guy came up with the idea to have a bunch of Depends adult diapers sent down so that everyone could stand around drinking beer and pissing themselves. I didn't make it to that party, but a friend of mine did. He hooked up with an amazing woman after the party. He picked up a chick while wearing a diaper. So there are women about. I imagined it was a matter of never-ending stag party with little hope of relief. Mm, it changes each season, but there's always more men than women. This leads to lots of aforementioned disco nights and dubious theme parties that find men in drag more frequently as the season lumbers on. There are usually enough women around so that in the darkest of winters one can soak up the elusive mysteries of the female through, well, conversation and such. But the odds are against he who simultaneously demands sex and employment. On the other hand, since few women expect long-term integrity from any of us wandering hooligans, the station during the short summer season can be like, well, Roman rabbit hutches. I should imagine. Is there a bar of sorts on hand? Certainly. The present bar has been around since, hmm, about 1975. It has a decent wooden top with brass footrail, an electric cooler for chilling cases of beer, and a much smaller cubby on the perimeter wall that, because it's usually colder than minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit outside, will chill a beer or a bottle in no time flat. There's a poker table and an entertainment centre, which includes a beta video player. A sign on the wall says... Hippies use side door, and there is a poster of Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator. It's also one of the few, if only, places on the station that has a proper wood floor. The bar is atypical in that drinks are not sold there. The bartender is whoever feels like tending bar at the moment, and uh, if no one does, you just go behind the bar and help yourself. All the stock is BYOB, and in a fashion communal, though those who don't bring their fair share to restock the bar, are mocked and humiliated. I should hope. Does anyone ever pass out in the snow? A while ago, this guy got so loaded he was trying to just lie down for a little while, in the snow on the way back from some booze fest. It was about minus 80 out, and he would surely have died were it not for his irritated fellows, who dragged him the quarter mile or so back to the station. This is nothing new, however. Such incidents have been happening since the 1950s. We live in a tight, caring community of polar fellowship, which understands that an irresponsible co-worker who can occasionally carry his own weight is far preferable to a frozen corpse that can't. 
Very sporting of you. Have you any signature cocktails of your own making? Mm, the earliest record I've found of a native Antarctic cocktail is from the Antarctica Lonely Planet Guide, where they claim a US Navy man in the 50s or 60s infused a pack of multicoloured lifesavers in a bottle of bourbon. In more recent days, I've discovered that hoarded red wine frozen for over a year in a utility tunnel is some of the most delicious I've ever tasted, though um, one must watch for the sediment. Also, in the bar recently, some gentlemen were cleaning house and concocted a drink made of all the liquor they wanted to get rid of. It was a mixture of root beer schnapps, peppermint schnapps, Kahlua, tequila, port wine, eggnog, and a splash of lime juice to make it curdle. They named the drink the ten dollar whore. Naturally. Do you ever run out of liquor? I have yet to hear of a winter when alcohol ran out altogether. But since it's too cold for planes to deliver spirits from February to October, each year is a harrowing fight for survival in regards to booze hoarding. One winter, they ran out of beer, so people were drinking shots of whiskey with red wine chasers. Another winter, all the wine was kept in a shack that somehow had the power out, so all the wine froze and management let people have it for free. This winter so far, we have run out of Maker's Mark, Bushmills, Crown Royal, Wild Turkey, Tequila, Rum and all bottled beer. The horror. Indeed. Do you find the occasion to go on drinking sprees in New Zealand or Argentina? Mm, there is one bar in Christchurch, New Zealand called Bailey's, which is the central hub for ice people to congregate. The, the owners of this bar have been very good to us and occasionally even send down kegs of beer in the summer for special parties. There's a plaque on the wall with the names of those who have drunk 100 pints of Guinness and the time it took them to do it. I think the record was set by some huge Samoan guy from McMurdo who did it in three days. I should like to have a crack at that title. You sent me a photo of a clown at the South Pole. Is there an active clown population at the Pole? Ah, that's Boozy the Clown, one of the most notorious personalities on this frozen rock. The worker who invented Boozy is very mild-mannered and pleasant, but when he dons the face paint and wig and rainbow clown shirt, he is displaced by a cruel and malicious drunken clown who knows no honour. When people see Boozy, they become frightened. He drinks their booze, steals their women, and ruthlessly humiliates the shy and timid. In typical Antarctic fashion, where one can never escape in work or play the familiarity with one's fellows, people don't confuse the action of Boozy with those of the mild-mannered worker, and may comment the next day that Boozy, not the worker, was the vicious hellion the previous night. I think most people's ideas about life at the South Pole comes from watching The Thing, starring the inimitable Kurt Russell. Homicidal aliens aside, how does the movie compare to real life in Antarctica? Well, it's almost entirely accurate except for five things. One, there are no aliens here. Two, we are not issued flamethrowers. Uh, three, there are no guns or dogs. Four, we don't store explosives in the main buildings. Five, there are fewer cowboy hat-wearing helo pilots than there are syrupy human resources representatives and administrative coordinators. Other than that, it's kind of like an impressionistic documentary. 
the station manager is usually a nincompoop, the doctor is usually nuts, and if our station burned down, there would be nothing for it but to get drunk and die. Do staff members try to make up for the lack of rampaging aliens by occasionally running amok themselves? Of course. Two winters ago in McMurdo, this guy we'll call um, D crept into another guy's room and began punching him in the head while he was sleeping. They had an issue over some woman. The recipient of the blows awoke promptly and after escaping further punishment, talked D around and gave him some more beer. Though sent out at the first flight, D was told by Raytheon, our savvy employer, that he could return to his indispensable position upon taking an anger management course. I've heard tales of a gentleman running amuck with a hammer. Ah, the gentleman in question was known to drink a bottle of Crown Royal just to get primed for further drinking. One day, so inspired, he walked into the galley and smashed his boss in the head with a hammer while he was eating. His task complete, he wandered the hall singing Mary Had a Little Lamb until he was tackled by a group of firefighters and detained in one of the local apartments, for which the carpenters were instructed to make wooden bars for the windows. Eventually, the FBI came down to snap some penguin photos and hero shots before escorting the assailant back to Hawaii, where he was eventually imprisoned. Does everyone drink at the pole? Oh, no. I've heard from credible sources that some people knit or listen to Christian music. I can't confirm these elusive reports. What is the preferred libation of Antarcticans? We tend to prefer anything that becomes scarce. Presently, Crown Royal is revered as some sacred ambrosia tapped from the centre of the earth, and he who brings a bottle into public at this late point in the winter will meet with the dual receptions of hearty backslaps in that there is probably enough for everyone to get a shot, yet secret ruminations of pushing the gentleman down the stairs once the bottle has been procured, with the justification that the fiend has been hoarding the commodity against the greater good of the station. At the beginning of the winter, the station manager made known to us that a limited supply of Sierra Nevada and Corona bottled beer was available, and that we could purchase one case of each. Despite that Corona is one of the most unremarkable beers on this planet, we descended on them like a pack of rabid rats on a lost toddler. One alcohol that I rarely see in the States, but which is certainly a staple here, is Bailey's Irish Cream. If there's one drink that typifies the Antarctic experience, it's Bailey's and coffee. People drink it at the stations, people drink it in the field camps, people drink it in the dorm rooms, people drink it in the laboratories. When you see those live-from-Antarctica-type feeds at museums, the scientists are usually at some field camp, and they usually have some time off, because otherwise they wouldn't be wasting it on a bunch of North lubbers stumbling around a museum. I'll give you ten to one. Any scientist you're talking to under such circumstances is, by 9am, ripped on Bailey's and has coffee tremors. I make of Bailey's popularity here that it is both a cold-weather drink and that because it is not really seen as a hard liquor, on their days off, folks can drink it in the morning more respectably than if they attacked a bottle of Servo Gold. A recent fad sweeping the station the last couple of seasons is the horrifying practice of snorting gin or vodka up one's nose. I have no idea what to make of this. 
Possibly it's a means of bypassing the liver and thus protecting it from injury. I've read that hangovers are especially brutal down there. Just so. Barometrically, we are at an altitude of approximately 10,000 feet, and temperatively, Antarctica is classified as a desert. It's very high and very dry, so while one's terrible thirst drives one to the conclusion that half of each beer is being lost to evaporation before it can be consumed, this is not really the case. Thus, two beers are conscripted where one might suffice. In addition, after one drinks two times as much as necessary to feel pleasant and warm in one's otherwise empty bed, the dry air suddenly attacks in the night and robs one of all moisture whatsoever. The victim, now with a nose full of dangerous and dagger-like boogers, wakes the next morning to suspect that the room has been humidified entirely by one's own saliva. Do you possess the secret of an especially effective hangover cure? Well, though it takes time to work, I have always found suffering to be a sure remedy. Is there a police presence in Antarctica? Has DUI ever been issued? Uh, there are no police officers here. So every rascal with a bit of authority attempts to fill that void with petty power plays and snooping hoovery. In any given season, the safety coordinator is one of the first to start meddling in our affairs, and it's also the one who would be called to task should we all start driving around loaded. As far as I know, there has never been the equivalent of a DUI. The worst punishment for almost any unpopular action here is to be fired and thus exiled from Antarctica. One of the main benefits of living there, as far as I can see, is you'll never run out of ice for your cocktails. Do you find the thousands of years old ice superior to the new ice we northerners have to make do with? During the summer, there are scientists at the Clean Air Observatory who host slushy parties. The snow upwind of the laboratory is quantifiably the cleanest in the world and thus suitable for a variety of margarita-like cocktails. The drawback, of course, is that once one has had a few, one needs to walk a good distance outside to have a cigarette, as it is quite unfashionable to light up in the clean air sector. That said, I'm convinced that any difference in taste between the superior Antarctic ice and the rancid varieties of common ice is a discernment fervent purely for the entertainment of the locals. Would you say your stay at the South Pole has reinforced your drinking habits? I would prefer to say, when in Rome... Right you are. Do you happen to subscribe to John Cleve Sims' theory that the Earth has holes at the poles that lead to a secret interior world, quite possibly populated by dinosaurs, Atlanteans and Nazi flying saucers? It's a little-known fact that science was the initial motivating force behind the United States exploring expedition led by Charles Wilkes, namesake of the massive geographic area called Wilkesland on the frozen continent. I don't as ascribe to Symes' theories, but I find him much more interesting than Charles Wilkes. Creative insanity versus regimental insanity. I've read that Wilkes was something of a brute. During his three-year expedition to the Pole, they only packed 800 gallons of rum for 48 men, which is roughly two ounces per man per day, providing there weren't any teetotalers in the bunch. Isn't it a wonder they didn't all go mad? They were all mad to begin with. Ah, and what of the seminal 1820 book entitled Simpsonia, A Voyage of Discovery, written by the remarkable Captain Adam Seaborn? 
He swore he actually visited the Hollow Earth and, seeing how he was a sailor, undoubtedly got fantastically legless there. The only hole at the South Pole is the cavern we drilled in the ice in which to deposit our yearly tons of feces that shall remain there until the day Antarctica melts. But shouldn't we mount an expedition to be certain? Please, take a moment to consider all the strange and magnificent Atlantean cocktails we might discover. I, for one, want nothing to do with any cocktail from said subterranean region, nor any voyage of discovery within. Pity. As you may well know, wild monkeys and elephants have been known to raid breweries and bars in Borneo and Africa. Is there a similar problem with the penguins there? Good God, man. I've never heard such a thing as the lower beasts having booze riots. Don't frighten me so in the dead of winter. Be on guard, sir. Only a matter of time before the beasts realise what they've been missing and take action. My research tells me that some stations ration the booze, allowing only one bottle of liquor, two bottles of wine or one case of beer per person per week. What you've read is an obsolete practice from the days when the Navy ran the Antarctica stations. In these days of the profitable company store, that practice has been abandoned. To keep up appearances, rations are, as you stated, but only per visit to the store rather than per week. Do you ever drink with the Norwegians, Kiwis, Russians and other chaps stationed up there? Local authorities threaten to punish such mingling, but I've had drinks with an Englishwoman who skied up to the pole from the coast. I know others who have drunk with the Russians as they've come through McMurdo Station, and I've heard their manners are as lively as their appearance is rugged. With their wild hair and beards, their crazy space boots, and their willingness to barter for whatever they can get their hands on. One can tell the Russians immediately because they don't look like they have a single data entry clerk among them. One time there was a mash fiend night in Gallagher's pub in McMurdo, and one of the Russians attacked someone who dressed up as Klinger. Can hardly blame the chap. By the end of the fourth season, I was prepared to assault the entire cast. Don't celebrities and politicians sometimes ring you chaps up with words of encouragement? In his book, Ninety South, the story of the American South Pole Conquest, Paul Sippel reported that during the first year at the Pole, they received a phone patch from Art Linkletter, the TV MC. The men learned from him which movie stars and actresses were still married and which had divorced. There was also a contact with a somewhat gay Dean Martin, the singer who was in Las Vegas. The men related that he sang a line from a song, then said he wished he could talk longer, but he had to go back to the bar. Dean Martin gay? Surely cycle meant that in a jolly sense of the word. Surely. Tell us about your forthcoming book, Big Dead Place. Well, it's all about the sex, drugs, madness, violence and endless bureaucracy on the Antarctic frontier. The book will be published in 2005 by Feral House Publishing. Until then, you can read a further Antarctic hijinks at www.bigdeadplace.com. Shout out this episode to Jono, who's damn fine company. Take care and appreciate your coffee.